Okay, let us begin. And to do so, let's approach the Lord. Lord, we thank you for this night where we are able to again gather to study your priesthood, to study who you are and what you have ordained for us to do. Thank you for this church. Pray that you will keep us focused on you and seeking to do your will. Thank you for the snow as you continue to meet the needs of the world in ways we see and in ways we don't see. Now I just ask that you will bless this time tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so there's just a few of us tonight, but thank you for being willing to be here. So we uh, we have a trajectory, and I want to stay on the trajectory. So I hate to to miss a week, but this is uh, this is actually the week that I that was really the germ for the class was in studying. Uh, Second Chronicles and some things that related to it in Second Samuel uh, really started thinking about how the kings were functioning as priests and asking questions about how could that be and that that was really kind of how I, I got onto this whole path of the king the the priesthood of God in general and and, and the line that runs through all of that. So in some ways, I'm, I'm most excited to talk about this tonight, just since this is where we all, where it all started, in, in my mind at least. And uh, in the notes, you see where it says prolegomena? You can just scratch all of that out, because that was from last week, and I forgot to paste in the one that I wrote for this week. So I apologize. Just scratch it out. Um, but just as, again, as a matter of, of quick review from what we've discussed up till now, um, we've seen how Adam functioned as a priest and, and Adam and Eve both functioned as priests in the garden but were expelled and that even though there was priestly activity after them uh, especially with Noah Abraham is really where that picks up and that he he is functioning as a priest and that he is doing the things that God calls a priest to do. But there is a significant step forward when Adam, Abraham meets Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a priest of a different nature from, from Abraham and those that, that came before and after him. But Abraham recognizes his superiority and acts accordingly. And, and and as a consequence of that action, God makes formally makes a covenant with Abraham. And then we continue on, and then we meet Jethro, and Jethro <clears throat> mediates between God and Moses, and, and is filling that, that Melchizedekian role with Moses, and ultimately ushers in the cutting of the covenant uh, between Israel and God. At the same time that that's going on, God had originally ordained that 
the firstborn would be his priest, the firstborn of Israel, that Israel itself was to be his firstborn son and to serve him as a nation of priests or a kingdom of priests. And <clears throat> that it was in that priesthood that Passover was instituted and that the people were led out of Egypt. And ultimately, it's in, it is that priesthood that will fail at Sinai with the golden calf, and they will lose their, their priestly prerogatives, and God will, <coughs> uh, he will pass the priesthood on to the Levites, or specifically to the descendants of, of Aaron, and the Levites are to serve uh, the Aaronic priesthood. And so with that, then we get this new priesthood that is, that is ordained in the law and that God has blessed, but it is still concessive in nature. Just as God is conceding for something that is less than ideal, uh, just as he will with Saul. We'll talk about that tonight. Aaron, from his very beginning, was a concession by God, and everything that flows from Aaron will be concessive in nature as well. So ultimately, this is a priesthood that is preordained to fail in a sense. It is, it is not going to succeed the way that a different priesthood will succeed. And that leads us to where I want to begin tonight, which is, tonight I, I want to focus on talking about David and his successors as priests. But before we get there, there's one person that really needs to be mentioned at, that fulfills that priestly role. And who, who would that be? Who do you think that would be? It's Joshua. So Joshua is, he himself is a fabulous, is a very rich study that's more than we have time for tonight, but worthy of, of a class just focusing on Joshua because perhaps other than David, more than anyone else in the Old Testament that really points towards Christ as, as a type of Christ, it's Joshua. So, and there are many, many things that point, you know, attributes of, of uh, Joshua that give us some indication of that. In part, we can see that in how he, Moses gave the law, but what did Joshua do with the law? He fulfilled the law, just as there is the law, but Christ will ultimately fulfill the law. So, but Joshua's name, well, if you rendered it into Greek and then into Latin, do you know what it would be? Jesus. So it literally means Yahweh saves. And originally, does anyone know what Joshua's original name was? No? It's Hosea, which, which means he saves. But in Numbers, when Moses commissions the 12 spies to go into Israel, 
it names the 12 spies, and then at the end it says, you know, it says Hosea, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, son of Nun, and then later down in the end of that passage, after naming all of them, it says, and Moses renamed Hosea Joshua. And so, jo so that is not the name he was born with, but Moses recognizes him for what he is and, and, and renames him Yahweh saves. So it's a covenantal name because he's going to carry on the covenant commission that Moses had. Um, so he fulfills God's law. Gentiles who believe in God's promise are saved through Joshua, uh, namely in the case of Rahab. And that's a whole other story because Rahab herself is a recapitulation of the Passover. Um, but that, like I said, that's another story. And then he leads God's people through the Jordan, just as Christ will lead us through the, the metaphorical Jordan of death to life on the other side. Um, and really, he, he is fulfilling this priest-king role, this Melchizedekian priesthood role. He is a priest of the people, but he also rules the people, and he commands them, and he orders them, and leads them in battle. And all the things that a king does, Joshua is doing. But how do we know that he is a priest? Well, we can see things that he does that are priestly in nature. And I have a sneeze brewing, so I might have to stop in a minute. Um, so, um, first of all, how, so how do we know Joshua is a, is a priest? Well, well, I mean, A, if he is a type of Christ, then it stands to reason that he is going to, I mean, a major type of Christ, a major foreshadowing of Christ, then he is going to be all of the above, prophet, priest, and king. And he really is all of the above. And we can talk about him as a prophet another time, but suffice to say, he also fulfills that. But how do we know he's a priest? Well, one is... One of the first times we, we hear of jo Joshua is in Exodus 24, when Moses, remember last week I talked about the stratification of Sinai and how it mirrors the garden and mirrors the tabernacle. So at the base, there's the people, and then halfway up the mountain are the priests and the elders of the nation, whereas in the tabernacle, and then at the very top is one person, the high priest who is in the presence of God. That's on Sinai. And then in the tabernacle and in the temple, you have the courtyard where all the people are. And then you have the holy place where all the priests are. And then you have the holy of holies where there's a high priest. So halfway up the mountain is equated with the holy place where the priests do their service and who's there on Sinai, but it's Moses, Joshua, and the elders. So other than Moses and Aaron, so you have Moses, Aaron, and Joshua, and then you have the elders. So Joshua is included in the place where the priests are. And then he is still on the mountain alone with Moses when the people commit apostasy with the golden calf. And then, even crazier, we don't, in Exodus 33, 11, this is the passage where Moses asks to see God's glory. But right before he does that, when he goes into the tent of the meeting, it says that Joshua is there with him. And not only that, 
But it says Moses would go into the tent of the meeting and discuss things with God, and then he would go home. But it said, and Joshua didn't leave the tent of the meeting. He was in there all the time. He's always in the presence of God, in effect. Look it up. It's Exodus 33, 11. So, and then... Uh, If you note there on the, the top of the second page in the little tick marks, it says before entering the land. Oh, never mind. Uh, well, but before entering the land, he mediates the covenant with the people. And then once they're in the land, once they've crossed the Jordan, he leads them in Passover. And in Joshua 8, he performs the priestly duties of building altars, offering sacrifices, and then, and this is a big one, there at the end of chapter 8, it, he leads the people in covenant renewal. And that is an inherently priestly activity. So we see Joshua, and there's more that he does towards the end of the book of Joshua, um, like in chapter 24. But that's just to give you a taste, sort of before they go into the land and after they go into the land, of the priestly things that Joshua is doing. And ultimately, what he is doing, especially because he is considered, you know, he is the, you know, we have these pairs in the Bible where we often think of the first as the greater. You know, there's Moses and Joshua. There's also Elijah and Elisha. But the indicators that you get from the text are actually that, I mean, we think of Moses and Elijah, right? Who's at the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. But in terms of what they actually do, Elisha and Joshua are actually the greater of those in those pairs. So Elisha is perfecting what Elijah has done, and Joshua is perfecting what Moses has done. So Moses got the law, Joshua is going to fulfill the law. And those are those relationships that you know ultimately are foreshadowing the relationship between the old order and the new order that's coming in Christ. So and but really as far as what's germane to this discussion tonight, Joshua is establishing an expectation of what a king-priest is going to do. He's going to rule the people justly, and he is going to lead them in their relationship with God. He's going to mediate for the people, and he's going to lead them in their priestly duties. So, ultimately... We see where that's going. So <clears throat> then the next important phase is when, it, I mean, obviously there is just chaos in Judges. I mean, it's, you know, famously, it, it's like the postmodern book of the Bible. They all did that which is right in their own eyes. You know, there is everything is subjective and uh, it's total chaos and it's it's really reminiscent of the post-garden existence of the world so once again God's people have to be pulled out of the chaos and the people want they decide they want a king well you know we often look at that as a bad thing because it's you know God was supposed to be their king but in Numbers, there is an expectation where it says that God says you will have a king. And he gives expectations for what that king 
is supposed to be. But nonetheless, the people reject God as their king, and they want a king like all the other nations. And so, ultimately, who do they get? Saul. And how is Saul selected? I mean, how, how is God, his selection approved? What action approves that? Yes, he's anointed by Samuel. Now, up to this time in the Bible, only two types of people are anointed, and that's it. One is the priests, and that's briefly mentioned in Leviticus. And then in chapter 16, all the discussion about anointing is all about the high priest. So up to, and then other than that, there's no discussion of anointing. So if you are to connect anointing as a practice at that point with anything that came before it, it's going to be an inherently priestly activity because Leviticus spends a lot of time talking about the anointing of the high priest. So Saul is anointed. But then the question is, does Saul fulfill his priestly calling? Does he have one? I think he does. But like everything else, Saul does not fulfill that which he's called to do. What did God promise him if he did what, you know, God's will? What what was Saul promised? Yeah, who else was promised that? Yeah. But well So Saul so let's let's set the table here cuz this is a, this is really important. And in some ways, this is really the, you know, uh, th- this is one of the, the absolute linchpins of the Old Testament. So chapter 7 of Second Samuel is, is absolutely essential. So, Saul is from what tribe? Correct. He's a Benjaminite. Benjam- Benjamite? Benjaminite? So, and David is from what tribe? Judah. And where is Jerusalem located? It's essentially on the border between Benjamin and Judah. So it, it's, it's, it is not in the heartland of Judah, but it is essentially right on the border between those two tribal areas. And up to this point, from Melchizedek up to this point, I mean, from after Melchizedek is what I'm trying to say, up to this point, who has occupied Jerusalem? Yeah, the Canaanites, or the, the Jebusites, who are a, tri- a type of Canaanite. And so Saul was anointed. He was king. He had many failings. But one of those failings was that he never did a thing about Jerusalem. Never does anything about it. David is the also anointed king. He's anointed twice. One when he was young, and then after he and then after Saul dies, David becomes the king of what? Yeah, he becomes the king of Judah before he becomes the king of Israel. 
He's anointed king of Judah. And then he captures Jerusalem. And at that point, he is anointed again as king of all of Israel. And that leads us into chapter 6, which is a key chapter. And my, my contention is that Saul, we'll get into chapter 6 here in a moment, but Saul was anointed and David was anointed. They were both anointed. And they were both intended to be king priests. God intended the, the king of his people to also be a priest. Who was the first of these priests that had the greater priesthood? It was Melchizedek. And he was the king of what? Salem. And do we know that Jerusalem and Salem are the same place? Yes, how do we know? Okay, where does it say that? The good one is Psalm 76, 1 through 2. It says, In Judah God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place is in Zion. It does not say Jerusalem. It says Salem. And Zion is definitely in Jerusalem. So we have Salem and Zion being located at the same place. And Melchizedek was the king of Salem. So we, we have a connection through all of this. And so Saul had an opportunity to establish himself as king in Salem. And he never lifted a finger to do anything about it. David also has an opportunity to establish himself as king in Salem. And he does it. And he does it swiftly and very early in his reign. And that really is the inauguration of his priesthood. Up to that point, there's not a lot that he does that we can really see as being a priest. But once he's been anointed king of all Israel, he captures Jerusalem. Now his priesthood begins. So let's look at chapter 6 of Second Samuel. And I have that down at the bottom of the second page. I have the whole passage... Uh, in here, and everything that is priestly in this passage, I have put in bold. So he is leading the Levites, okay, just the fact that he's leading the Levites in carrying the ark into the city. It says, those who carried the ark, talking about the Levites, the ark of the Lord took six steps, and then David sacrificed an ox and fatling calf. Okay, anytime you see somebody making a sacrifice like that, that is a priestly activity. Now David, wearing a linen ephod. Who wears the ephod? The high priest wears the ephod. Where in the heck does it say that he can do that? Was dancing with all his strength before the Lord. Who goes before the Lord? The priests do. And all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord. Again, the ark is tied. There is, it is tied closely to the Levitical priesthood. So anytime you see the ark being mentioned, 
there's going to be priests involved. It says, David and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord, shouting and blowing trumpets. You go back to Numbers. I think it's Numbers 10.10. I could be wrong about that. But it talks about how they are to, as they go around with the ark, they are to be blowing their trumpets. And that harkens back to uh, like the destruction of Jericho. What did they do? They, the priests carried the ark around the city, blowing their trumpets. So here you have that being repeated again as the ark is being brought into Jerusalem. And as the ark entered the city of David, uh, Saul's daughter, Michal, looked out the window, and when she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him. They brought the ark of the Lord and put it in its place in the middle of the tent that David had pitched for it. On what basis does David build a tabernacle and pitch it in Jerusalem that David made for it? Now think about this. Not only did David make the tent, but he pitched it. Who is responsible for setting up the tabernacle? The Levites. So here David has totally bypassed all of that. And he has taken on his own prerogative, done all of that himself. So he made the tent and he pitched it. I'm sure he had some help, but the point is he's doing all of this on his own. Then David offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. Again, that is a very priestly activity. Who offers the sacrifices in the tabernacle? Only the sons of Aaron. And when, he, when David finished offering the burnt sacrifices and peace offerings, he pronounced a blessing over the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. So he is also pronouncing blessings. This is all priestly stuff. Now, do we have to have it say, and also he was the high priest of Melchizedek in order to see that he is functioning as a priest? No, we don't have to have it spelled out for us. It's, it's as plain as day. It's like the Trinity, you know. It's like peop some people just want it to say, and God is X, you know, Trinity. But it doesn't work that way because Scripture is bigger than that. You know, Scripture reveals things in the, in the breadth of, his, of its testimony. And here is a, another thing that is being revealed to us in the breadth of its testimony. And so, David is, as the ark is being brought into the temple, he is, this is almost like the inauguration of his priesthood. Because now he is, he is functioning as the priest leading the nation before God. And again, we know that Jerusalem is... I lost my train of thought. Is Salem from Psalm 76. So David is bringing God's presence into Salem, where Melchizedek was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. So in that sense, David himself is the king of peace, but he is also the high priest, just as Melchizedek was the high priest and it's an interesting parallel 
now at this point because what you have here in chapter 6 and then coupled with it, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, but coupled with chapter 7 is you have a recapitulation of Sinai. And this is a really, really important event. So you have Moses going up on Sinai, and he's in the presence of God. And he goes up the mountain, he encounters God, and then God makes a covenant with him. Well, here you now have David also going up the mountain Jerusalem is, you know, this where the temple was, was the highest point on the mountain. It's a holy hill. So David goes up the mountain, puts the ark in this new tabernacle, and then he encounters God. And what does God do with David? Chapter 7. Really important chapter in the Old Testament. What? Yeah. He makes the Davidic covenant with David. So you have this priestly leader, priest king, going up the mountain, encountering God face to face, and making a covenant with God. The parallels are all there. Moreover, when it when Moses was meeting with God in the tent of meeting, this is back in Exodus 33, how does it say that they conversed? How does it describe their conversation? As if among friends. And let's look at chapter, 2 Samuel 7, chapter 18. <clears throat> it says, Then King David, this is after he's met with Nathan, the prophet, and Nathan has already revealed a lot of these the parts of the covenant with David. But it says, Then David, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house? And so on. Think about that. Where is, the, where is God? Where is the ark? It's in the tent. It's in the tabernacle. And it says, David went in, doesn't say into what, but we can draw our conclusions because where is the ark? Went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I? Now, who is the only person that is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God? The high priest. So here's David going into the tabernacle and sitting before the ark in the presence of God and having a chat face-to-face as if like friends, just as Moses did with God in the tent. It's pretty crazy when you think about it. You know, all these times you read about David and the Davidic covenant and things, it's like we miss this one little detail that he's going into the Holy of Holies and sitting down and talking with God. Like, that's mind-blowing to me. Because I think of David as the mighty man, you know, he's going out there with his armies and, you know, killing his, his ten thousands. And yet, really, 
he's also the priest who goes in and meets with God face to face and talks to him. That reminds me, this is a total digression. But one I wanted to mention about Joshua and how Joshua, you know, is a foreshadowing, is a type of Christ. And he, you know, almost everything about him is pointing forward to Christ. And yet, he meets Christ himself before the walls of Jericho in the pre-incarnate Christ in Joshua chapter 5. It's like, that's pretty mind-blowing to me. So, anyway, just a digression. Um, so, again, this, this bringing of the ark into Jerusalem is really the beginning of David's priesthood. And it's something we're going to see repeated again and again. And David being a priest is actually really important because he is establishing very important precedents and foreshadowing that are going to be fulfilled by Christ. And the establishment of the ark in Jerusalem is a pivotal moment for the nation. Let me ask you this, on what basis in the law gives any allowance for David to do that? Nothing. The law spells out what the tabernacle is supposed to look like. It says nothing about a temple or the king moving the temple into a new location or the king usurping the prerogatives, the God-given prerogatives of the Levites to do this. And yet, do the people go along with it? Seemingly. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's any objection. So I think they understood David's position. That's my sense, at least. That's, that's what I take from it. So, but ultimately, how do we know that God approved of this action? Well, there's a lot of ways we can tell. Moving the ark into Jerusalem is what I mean. I'm sorry. How do we know God approved of this? This isn't in the law, but did God approve of it? And I would contend, yes, very much so he did. So, I mean, in one case, you could say, you know, you look at the judgment on Rehoboam when the nations, the tribes split and formed the two kingdoms, but it says that God will keep one tribe, Judah, for the sake of David, and one tribe, Benjamin, for the sake of Jerusalem. You can see that God has ordained Jerusalem as a special place. I mean, that's just one indicator, but a really important one, one I really want to dwell on for a moment, is Psalm 132. And I didn't want to read the whole thing, but I, I organized it. It's, it has a, it's not exactly a chiastic structure, but it's a parallel structure. So you have the first 10 verses kind of have a four-tiered level uh, order of things, and then the last eight verses have a parallel four tiers. And really what you take, so you have in tier one, you have David makes an oath to Yahweh. Tier two, 
Zion is to be God's dwelling place and rest. That's important. The priests are then dressed, and there is singing, and David is anointed. So that's David's proposition to God. That's, that's the first phase. And then there's a parallel set of tears in God's response. God makes an oath to David in response. And God states that Zion is where he desires to rest. The priests are closed and there is singing. And then David's seed is recognized as the one that the future anointed will come from. So where David is anointed in God's response, David's future seed is recognized as the future anointed one. But what's important in this context, I mean, obviously the messianic aspects of that are profound. But for what we're talking about now is God is putting his stamp of approval on what David has done. David brings the ark into Jerusalem and initiates his priestly rule over the nation. And here in Psalm 132, we see God putting his stamp on it and and blessing the priests as a consequence. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But why doesn't David get to build it? Okay. What does that tell you? Why would God object to that? And who is it important that they be cleansed? The priests. See how that all fits together? And was Solomon a man of war? No, he was a man who had not touched death the way high priests are forbidden from doing so. So he will be the one who will build God's house. It, all, it makes more sense when you understand it in terms of priesthood, doesn't it? So, okay, so speaking of David's future seed who will be the anointed one, that brings us to Psalm 110. And this is one of the most studied psalms out of all of the psalms. And it's one of the most directly prophetic in terms of the Messiah. And it's also one of the Psalms, one of the three places in the Bible where Melchizedek is identified by name. So what are the three? Genesis, Hebrews, and Psalm 110. So all of the things we've seen, just starting out, all of the things we've seen David doing up to this point identify him as a priest and also identify him. He is strongly connected to Melchizedek through Jerusalem. 
and the fact that Melchizedek was not a Levite, and neither is David. So on what basis is he doing all of these things? But here now you have an explicit reference to, by David, who wrote this psalm, to the priesthood of Melchizedek. He is well aware of what it is. So at the beginning of the psalm, it says, the Lord, or it says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, first off, how do we know who is this talking to? Well, David is writing it. Okay, so all of this is coming from the mouth of David. And it says, so God says, so how do we know it's God? Because it says Yahweh. I mean, it says the Lord said to my Lord, but that's not what it says in Hebrew. What, what does it mean when you see Lord in all caps? Yahweh. So the, ra- the way to read this is Yahweh says to my Lord. Now, the, the, the word there, Lord, in lowercase, or after L, it's lowercase. What word is that in Hebrew? No. Adonai. Now, that is the third most common term for God in the Old Testament, after Yahweh, and then Elohim, and then Adonai. But is that a term that is used exclusively for God? No, it's, it's very commonly used as a form of address to a king. So here David is saying, God said to my king. That's really how we can read that in Hebrew. He says, so it's David's king. So David the king is saying, is recognized, is, is now looking at this image of Yahweh saying to David's king. Who is David's king? Jesus. So, but he is the one who is promised to David in the Davidic covenant who will sit on his throne forever. And so the future king will share rule with Yahweh, with God. So it says, sit at my right hand. That's to, sh- to say that is to, to say to sit here and rule with me. The right hand is the position of power. So he's saying, so Yahweh says to my king, rule with me, is in effect how you can read that. It says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. So we've already now established the connection between Zion and Melchizedek. And then at the end, it says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is speaking to David's future king, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
So David recognizes that the fulfillment of the promise that was made to him in chapter 7 will be made by a king who will rule with God, who will be a descendant of David. I mean, he knows that from the covenant. Who will rule with God and be his high priest who will also rule as a king forever. So Psalm 110 is a really powerful confirmation of of not just of you know Christ and, and the messianic, the prophetic, the messianic prophecy that is being made here, but it's also a powerful confirmation of David's understanding of what the high priesthood of Melchizedek entailed. We know he was aware of that. We know he was functioning as that. And so he is foreshadowing Christ as well just as Joshua was. As it says in Acts, he's a man after God's own heart. The Bible doesn't say that about anybody but David. And that leads us to the end of 2 Samuel, which is 2 Samuel chapter 24. And in, in a lot of ways, this is, this is the culmination of David's kingship. This is in his final days. I mean, he's there at the beginning of Kings, but at that point he is very old and pretty much non-functional and just sort of right at the cusp of death. So here he is at the end of his life and God tells him to rely on God and David doesn't. And he counts his spears to see how many soldiers are going to fight with him. And because of his lack of reliance on God, God afflicts the people. And David sees this. And so, and it says, this is in uh, 2 Samuel 24, right towards the end. And uh, it says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And so what is he doing? He's interceding and doing what? Offering himself up as a sacrifice to atone for sin. And what's God's response to that? He relents. And then he tells David to go and build an altar. That is, who does that? The priests do that. But where does he get to build it? Where the temple is going to be. He goes and buys the land for the temple and builds an altar there and makes sacrifices. Right after he interceded and offered himself up as a sacrifice, he gets to go. So God said he couldn't build the temple, but it's like God's giving him some grace here at the end of his life to go and at least build an altar and make sacrifices on the place where God's house is going to be. So that's actually a huge act of grace that God has for David. So not only does he end the affliction, but then he blesses 
he gives an extra you know uh unit of great unit that's not not the word i extra measure of grace is the word i was looking for uh to david to be able to go and do this but he's not saying go and do this thing as a king he's saying go and do this as a priest and serve me so once again reinforcing it's like the last really th- proactive thing you see david doing in his life is being a priest not being a king not being a warrior that's what got him in trouble here but he is to go and be a priest and that sort of closes out david's life but what do we take from that we have more to say tonight what am i supposed to be done when i get done okay I mean, the timing is a little off, so I don't know. Okay. Um, But, so David himself is continuing that high priesthood of Melchizedek. He is no Levite. He is no son of Aaron. But he is the king of Jerusalem. And he is acting in God's will by functioning in that priesthood and interceding for his people and leading them in the worship of God. And in some ways, that's really the greatness of David's reign. It's not his conquests. Other people have conquests, but nobody since Joshua led the people before God the way David did. So it's really the greatness of David is in his priestly role, not in his kingly role. Does that make sense? It's really a profound thing when you think about it because we always think of him as he's the king. I mean, and he is the king, but his greatness is really wrapped up in his priesthood. And I, it's, it's a tragedy that he is overlooked in that capacity, that he is, you know, it's like the priesthood is something that you kind of have to, you have to dig a little deeper into the text to see it. I mean, that's not the tragedy, but it's like that extra effort that we need to go through to see that is something that isn't done very often. So ultimately, David is pointing towards whom? Jesus. So again, we see D- Jesus, Jesus, Jesus more closely in David, is what I was trying to say, uh, if we understand him in the con- really in the context of all three prophet, priest, and king. But the you know, the king is obvious, and I think the prophet is, l- is less well-known, but still recognized, especially through his authorship of the Psalms. But when was the last time anyone talked about his priesthood? Never. So, you know, it, it's really doing a disservice to David. I mean, not that David cares, but, you know, I mean, it's really not fleshing, you know, really getting the most out of the word that is being revealed here and really what it's telling us about Christ and how Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. Because again, you know, it, when, it, when it says that, you know, the whole of the scriptures pointed to Christ and Christ is showing these guys how it all does, like these are the kinds of things I'm sure he was showing them. It's like, look, I, I am the fulfillment of this. You may not have seen this, but here it is. It's there, and it's been waiting for you to discover it. Anyway. Okay. So I got three more things I want to talk about, but I'll be a little more brief in talking about them tonight. Um, 
One is that after Solomon, he builds the, the temple, and then he sins at the end of his life. And notice David also sinned towards the end of his life. Well, he sinned when he was younger too, but there's a lot of these kings sinning towards the end of their lives. And God judges Solomon and says that the northern tribes are going to be taken from his family. But Solomon won't see that in his lifetime. And so who comes and takes the northern tribes? Who, who rips them away from the house of David? Jeroboam. And what does Jeroboam do? Yeah, he builds, he makes two calves and puts them at the north and south of the northern kingdom. And then what does he do? He appoints priests to serve at them. These are not Levites. These are not Aaronic priests. And are they called by God? No, they are not. So this is a counterfeit priesthood. It's a really dark thing when you think about it because we ha- the, what he's doing is he is, you know, so he is making a counterfeit religion. It's like a form of Old Testament antichrist because he is, he is making something that's like something from their past. What did they worship in their past? A golden calf. So Jeroboam can say, look, your forefathers worshipped this. And Aaron himself said, behold the God who brought you out of Egypt before the calf. And so Jeroboam is being really, really darkly clever in establishing this counterfeit priesthood to worship a counterfeit God. Yes, and that tells me that the people were not too aware of their own history, unfortunately. Yeah, where have we heard that before? Um, And Why would Jeroboam want to do this? Well, how is he going to maintain the hold on his kingdom if all the people are going to Jerusalem? They're going to be going to Jerusalem and worshiping Yahweh in solidarity with their Judah and Benjaminite brothers and sisters and not staying in the area controlled by Jeroboam. So this is really just a cheap power play. But in the end, he is going to lead all those tribes into apostasy. So, And I am sure that they were still saying, this is Yahweh. You don't need to go to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. Just come to Dan or come to Bethel and worship Yahweh over here by this other thing. And so, you know, it's, it, it's, it's you know, when we were talking about church history and Trinitarianism, when Tertullian was writing his work at Versus Praxius, and this is the first work where he uses the word Trinity to describe it, and he's emphasized, when Tertullian, he, in this work, he's emphasizing the oneness and the threeness of God. But at the very beginning, he says that the enemy will use the truth to tell a lie. And that he will, you know, in, 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 in emphasizing the oneness of God, the enemy has sacrificed the diversity of God, the threeness of God. And so here, it's the same thing where the enemy, through Jeroboam, 
is using the truth to turn people away from God. It's the same old thing. So, but it's just interesting. I bring it up because it's a counterfeit priesthood. But what's the remedy to the counterfeit priesthood? It's the true priesthood of God. And who, aside from the Levites, who is the true priesthood embodied? Who is it embodied by is what I'm trying to say. Well, that's coming, but at this time, yeah, which is now in the hands of whom? The house of David. So through the Davidic covenant, God has pretty much promised that that order of Melchizedek will be in the house of David. And so what are David's sons doing? That is the, the, the question that now has to be answered. And all those kings of Judah are to, to be functioning in this priestly capacity. And we do see good kings functioning in this priestly capacity. You have Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoiada, Joash, Hezekiah, even Manasseh, who was a bad king, but I'll talk about him in a minute, and Josiah, all doing priestly things. And I listed them there in the beginning, you know, in section 5. It says they should be doing, I mean, they are all men, these good kings are mentioned, some combination of cleaning the temple, offering sacrifices, renewing the covenant, organizing priests, and offering prayers or pronouncing blessings. Those are all priestly activities. And you see Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoiada, Joash, Hezekiah, Manasseh, and Josiah all doing some combination of those things. Manasseh, all he does is offer prayer before the people. Now, he was a bad king, and he got thrown in jail in, I think it was in Babylon, and he was tormented and finally released and goes back. But while he's in jail, he prays to God and says, I'll reform if you, you know, if you get me out of here. And he goes back, and that's when you see him doing the thing he's supposed to be doing is after he's released. But there's two kings in there that really stand out. Who are those? Absolutely. Hezekiah is, he's like, he's the best one. Because other than David, he is the only one of those kings that does all five of those activities. You see him do every one of those things. So only David and only Hezekiah do all those priestly activities. And I've talked about this before, and I'll, so, but you know, here's my chance to talk about it again. And it's one of my favorite parts of the Bible. But if you go to 2 Chronicles 29 and 30... It's just, it's just a glorious thing in the history of the people. But they, you know, they've been under the rule of, of Ahaz. And <clears throat> he was, he didn't just apostatize, but he led the people in Baal worship for, dec for two decades and he turned the, the temple of God into a, into a temple of Baal. And so when he dies, Hezekiah becomes king. What's interesting about Hezekiah's lineage? He's the only one of these kings who is of the house of David, but also a Levite. His mother was a Levite. So he's priestly on both sides. 
which is interesting to me, at least. I mean, not that being a Levite makes you a priest. You have to be descended from Aaron for that. But he is in that priestly tribe. And, you know, his, his, his mother was the daughter of the high priest. So he is from the line of Aaron as well. So Hezekiah has a really interesting lineage. But, so Hezekiah becomes priest in the, I mean, well, he does become priest, but he becomes king when his father dies. And the first thing he does is, we're going to go clear the temple out. We're going, to, we're going to sanctify the temple. He does that. He starts sanctifying priests because there were only like five priests that had kept themselves clean through the reign of Ahaz. So there was almost nobody left, just a remnant. Where have we heard that before? And so Hezekiah says, guys, start sanctifying yourselves. And he's telling them what to do, these priests. He's directing the priests in clearing, clean, in sanctifying the temple. Again, where in the law is the basis for that? But immediately Hezekiah has assumed that mantle of priest of Melchizedek, in the order of Melchizedek. So he directs the cleaning of the temple, he directs the sanctifying of the priests, and then he directs the people in reinstituting the Passover because it hasn't been celebrated for decades. And you can feel the, the jubilation of the people as they are, are celebrating the Passover for the first time. And they're celebrating, they're just the joy that they have for being brought into a right relationship with God. And, and Hezekiah was, he ruled jointly with his father for a few years, and it was during that time that the northern kingdom Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. So he's the first king to be king now without a northern counterpart. And so he sends messengers up into the northern kingdom, into the, the smoking ruins of the northern kingdom. And he says, come worship with, the, you know, with us in Jerusalem. Get right with God and forsake the folly of your forefathers. And a lot of the northern tribes laughed at him. I mean, the remnants of what was left. But it says that many came to Jerusalem and worshiped God. And here's the key part. And it's, so they're celebrating the Passover. And it says, um, I'll start at uh, 17. It says, For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites had to... Sl- now remember, the Levites. Levites are not priests. Only the sons of Aaron are priests. The Levites as a tribe serve the priests. So there aren't enough priests to make enough sacrifices. And, I mean, you can go back even just before that. It says, And they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day, and the priests and the Levites were ashamed so that they had, conse- so that they had consecrated themselves and brought burnt offering houses to the Lord. They were ashamed of themselves. And they took the blood they had received from the hand of the Levites, and they, they threw... The priests threw the blood that they had received from the hands of the Levites. What does that mean? They were sprinkling it on the altar. That's how they make absolution for sins. You slaughter the animal, sprinkle the blood on the altar. That is what the priest does. That's what Christ is going to do forever. It says, for there were, so, uh, for there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean, to consecrate it to the Lord. 
for a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, these are the northerners come down to worship for the first time in, in a long time, hundreds of years. So, uh, yet they, for there were a majority who were unclean, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. And here's the key part. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his forefathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. Now, holy smokes, there is a lot we can do with this. But let's, now let's just pause here for a minute and let's think back. Okay, well, first, is that not a high priestly prayer of intercession? Darn right it is. Okay, that's the prayer that Christ is praying for us before God forever. Does that make sense? Okay, but, so he is doing that in the capacity as the, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. That means he is doing it as a high priest from a priestly order that predates the law. Okay, now when we talked about things predating the law, we talked about how did they know what they were to do. Well, he, he wrote it on their hearts. You know, like it says that Abraham kept God's statutes, ordinances, and commandments. It says, that, how did Abraham know what they were? And that looks, Paul talks about that in Romans 2, where, you know, even without the law, the Gentiles were a law unto themselves because they have it. Part of being made in the image of God is to have that, in effect, that conscience, that God-given conscience that tells us what is right and what is wrong. And we see Jethro, again, functioning in that Melchizedekian priesthood, and there's a whole bunch that leads in, that establishes him as doing so. But Jethro leads Moses, trains Moses to delegate the, other, the, the priestly functioning, the priestly rule of the people to other people, to other priests amongst the people, that firstborn priesthood. And that, you know, basically they know how it's going to be, what, what is just and what's not just, according to what is, in effect, written on their hearts. And when we saw in Jeremiah... 33, the new covenant, where it will be written on their hearts. And, you know, God is going to restore, Christ is going to restore that in the new covenant. You know, you're not going to need the law. The law is written on their hearts. And what does it say here where, Melchiz where Hezekiah is functioning in, in that high priesthood of Melchizedek? He, he knows what has come before, and he, he has, probably has a sense of where this is all going, you know, God's salvific trajectory, but where you have that, that on-the-heart writing of God's law that's part of being made in the image of God, and it says, May the good Lord pardon everyone whose heart, who, uh, who sets his heart 
to seek God. So it's even apart from the law, God's ways are written on people's hearts. And Hezekiah knows this and intercedes for them as a priest apart from the law. Does that make sense? See how it all fits together? It's actually, it's really magnificent. It's not like the same thing. It is the same thing. You're absolutely right, Hoyt. I mean, this is the New Testament being blared out like a trumpet in the Old Testament. it's, It's really just amazing. And that's... Again, you know, uh, Hezekiah is the only king, priest, who does all these things the way David did. David was the only priest, king priest, that did all five of these priestly duties. Hezekiah is the only one. And this great celebration of the Passover, it even says that this, none, the likes of which had not been seen in Jerusalem since the days of Hezekiah's father, David. So there's a, there's a direct linkage between all of this stuff. So and then there's Josiah, um, and you know he he also is written about in glowing terms, and he also does many priestly things. He does four of the five, but not all five of the five. That's not a knock on Josiah. He was a great king, and he was a great priest. He was really up against it because when he became king, within a few generations after Hezekiah, they had completely lost the law. Like, they didn't even have, it's like they had no knowledge of it. Because while they're cleaning out the temple to re-sanctify it after it had begin, been used to for abominable purposes, while they're cleaning it out, it says they found a copy of the law. And it's like their reaction is like, oh my, what is this? It's like, we're doing it all wrong. But he, through the finding of, this, of the law, he reinstitutes everything again. And it's not like it's the high priest who's ordering everything around, like the, the ironic high priest. It's Josiah, once again, the king priest, who is directing all of this. And then he dies. And then what happens? Jerusalem is destroyed. And there is a lacuna in the high priesthood of Melchizedek. And I'm going to end on this. So give me just a few minutes and then I'll, I'll end. I know I've gone way longer than I normally do tonight, but there's just a lot to say about this. And this is the short, short version. But we get a taste of the restoration of the king-priest in Zechariah chapter 6. So, and this is all about encouraging the exiles who are returning from Babylon to be faithful and to restore. Let me turn to Zechariah. To, you know, rebuild the temple and, and all of this kind of stuff. And that ultimately will lead to this really remarkable chapter of of uh, in chapter six of of, Zed, of Zedekiah of Zechariah, where it's talking about the high priest Joshua. Now, right there, you should your ears should perk up, 
Okay, because, well, who else is named Joshua? Jesus. And Jesus is also the high priest. So you have a high priest named Joshua. And incidentally, the high priest Joshua's father's name is Jehozadak. What does that mean? Yahweh is righteous. And so let me, so let me just read this passage. This is uh, Zechariah 6, 11 through 14. And there's a little bit of extra names in here that we don't need, but it's okay. So it says, Take from the exiles Heldai, uh, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown. Make a crown. And set it on the head of Joshua, the, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both, and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord, as a reminder. So here now, as the temple is being rebuilt after the exiles have returned, they are being given a vision of the high priest who is also wearing a crown. The crown and the temple are once again going to be merged. What was lost will be restored. And so you're going to see, and this, this prophecy here has a lot to do with, I mean, it, 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 very, it comes up a lot in the New Testament. But the, the bottom line is, there is a vision now. The temple is being rebuilt. The people are back in the land. And there is a vision now of one who is coming, of a shining high priest who is going to once again combine the crown and the temple into one person. And obviously we know who that is. So the ultimate shining high priest is Jesus Christ. And that's where I will end tonight. Next week I'm going to talk about, this is, next week will kind of be the the apogee of the class, as we'll be talking about Christ as our great high priest. And then after that, my dad's going to teach for a couple weeks, and he's going to talk about what we do with that and what does that mean for us now in the church age. So, so next week, we're, we're going to finally get to Christ as the high priest. We're going to be done foreshadowing, and we're going to let the light really shine. So... So I will end there. I thank you for your patience. I know that was a long class. I hope it was not too much to kind of shotgun out at you guys. But Okay, so let's close in prayer. Lord, we come before you as your royal priests because you are our great high priest. I pray that you will empower us to serve you the way that you desire us to serve you. 
that we are effective, that we are courageous, and that we are obedient to your will. So I thank you that you have revealed so much and more beyond all understanding in your word, and that you give us the privilege of of reading it with eyes that are empowered to see. So thank you for all those who are not here tonight and pray that you will bless them and that you will keep them until we are all back together again next week. In your name we say all of this, and by the power of your spirit we say amen.